This is a Federal News Network podcast. As the federal health apparatus contemplates whether a second COVID-19 booster shot is a good idea or not, it's good to recall the national effort that resulted in vaccines in the first place. We get a look back from the former Health and Human Services Deputy Chief of Staff who oversaw Operation Warp Speed, Paul Mango. Mr. Mango, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. And people forget about how these vaccines kind of did come into existence. It was really a collaboration, I guess you might say, between the private sector and the government. From the inside, tell us more about what it looked like and how this whole thing got started. Yeah, well, I'll tell you how it got started. It was in March of 2020, Tom, and uh, we had already been engaging some of the pharmaceutical industry. At the end of March 28th, I think, or 29th, we issued a grant to Johnson & Johnson for $450 million to help develop its vaccine. And Secretary Azar asked a very important question, what are we getting for that 450 million? And the answer we got was, well, they'll start their trials in September. And Azar, who had come from the pharmaceutical industry said, that's business as usual, we can't do that. And that was the impetus literally for a strategy which was designed to tremendously accelerate without compromising safety and effectiveness, the development, manufacturing and distribution an administration of vaccines known as Operation Warp Speed. So that's how it started. And how did it morph into so many pharmaceutical companies, three or four, coming up with vaccines more or less simultaneously? Yeah, well, we had a great chief scientific advisor, Monsef Slawi, who was the most successful vaccine developer of our generation. He had put 14 successful vaccines in the market. And when he came in as an advisor, he developed what we would call a venture capitalist mindset, meaning let's place some bets we only have to win one. So what he did was chose three different technology platforms, mRNA, which everyone is familiar with, that's Pfizer and Moderna, and then what's called Viral Vector, which was Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. And then there's a third one called Protein Subunit, which is Novavax and GSK Sanofi. But Monsef also knew, and Gus Perna, the general in charge of logistics, knew that we couldn't go much beyond just a handful of candidates because the logistics of getting the needles, getting the syringes, all of which took different sizes, by the way, you know, different intervals between one dose and another. The logistics would be tremendously complicated if we went beyond about six candidates. So we we settled on six and three of them were winners. Uh, so that's not bad for a venture capital strategy. Right. And what kind of oversight or check-ins or dashboards did the administration have into this process as it proceeded? I talk about this in the book, it's, it's very interesting. And this was actually one of my roles was to keep the White House intently informed of what was going on with Operation Warp Speed. So I'd have meetings over there twice a day, Jared Kushner would convene a meeting at eight in the morning, and then we'd have the White House Coronavirus Task Force meeting led by Vice President Pence in the afternoon. And my role was to bring them updates on what was happening, how many doses were manufactured, when we thought things were gonna be submitted to the FDA, And what that served, Tom, a very important purpose, which was it kept the team protected from distractions. So I kind of protected the team. They kept their heads down and did what they needed to do. I kept the White House and everyone else up to date. Was there any crosstalk among the companies that were competing for this? Because maybe if it's a warp speed situation and someone came up with something at Pfizer that someone at Moderna could use, why not share it? Yeah, so there was a lot of collaboration, and we used a mechanism called Defense Production Act Title VII. And what that is, Tom, that permits, in times of emergency, competitors to collaborate. And they couldn't exchange any information on pricing or whatever, but they could exchange information on technologies and development 
And indeed, what we wound up doing was engaging some pharmaceutical firms to manufacture vaccines of other companies' actual vaccines. So it was a highly collaborative effort. And I think the industry really stepped up and did a nice job. Almost like Ford Motor Company making B-24s in World War II. Precisely. And Ford Motor Company, by the way, manufacturing ventilators in 2020, they kind of converted over their lines to do that so we'd have enough ventilators for the American people. We're speaking with Paul Mango. He's former Health and Human Services Deputy Chief of Staff. He oversaw Operation Warp Speed and has a book out by the same title. And at what point did you realize that you were going to get to that finish line? Well, it's very interesting, Tom. When we interviewed Monsef Slawi in April of 2020, and we interviewed many candidates for that role, by the way, former government officials from the NIH and so forth from the FDA. The point is he came in, he had been a board member at Moderna. And believe it or not, Moderna already had a good vaccine by April of 2020. We didn't know that, but they had a good vaccine. What do I mean? Well, we hadn't taken it through the trials. It hadn't been manufactured at scale. So we were confident that the scientific aspect of this would be done in time. What we were less confident about was the manufacturing because manufacturing vaccines in five liter increments versus 2000 is a very different science. So anyway, we knew to answer your question specifically, we knew the clinical trials were going very well in August and September of 2020. So we had a very good hunch that we would be done before the end of the year and have at least one safe and effective vaccine manufactured at scale. And was there prior science here? Because my understanding of this is limited, but there are 15 or 16 families of viri that could wipe out mankind. And the COVID-19 was in the family where we have some experience in developing vaccines already. And unlike, say, the polio vaccine took 50 years between discovery and a vaccine. Is that the case? Well, I don't know all of the science behind it, Tom, but I think the chief difference this time around was that the mRNA technology, which had been under development for over a decade, Moderna was collaborating with the NIH before the pandemic on cancer treatments, and they pivoted very quickly. And this technology is very dexterous, if you will. You can use it for different things. And that, I think, is what made the biggest difference, more than the coronavirus being in a family that was, quote, familiar to us. And on the mechanical side of this, I imagine there's more to building, packaging, and distributing the vaccines than simply baking a big vat and pouring it into little tiny bottles. You see the video B-roll on television of these millions of bottles flying past. Did the industry have to gear up for the volume in this case? Absolutely. And one of the most demanding items, Tom, was the fact that the Pfizer vaccine had to be stored and transported at minus 80 degrees Celsius. And we didn't have glass that could handle the vaccine at that temperature without shattering. Corning had to develop that special vial in a very, very short period of time. We had to secure a billion needles and syringes from various places around the world. And you can imagine everyone was trying to get their hands on those things. We had to create an information technology system that could track the delivery of these vaccines from factory through to warehouse to shipping hubs, FedEx and UPS, and then out to 50,000 different locations because we had to keep track of where they all were. So it was a very sophisticated logistical operation led by the Army Materiel Command. If there's any folks from the Army listening, they should be very proud of their colleagues who did just a fantastic job, but mainly a logistics challenge more than a scientific challenge. And by the way, where are injection needles mostly made? Well, a lot of them were made in China, and we had to secure some from there. But there's other American firms like Becton Dickinson. I think that's a common name for people in the medical industry. And we had to help them ramp up their manufacturing capacity. So 
part of this was where they were originally sourced from, but another part of it was we had to expand or start from scratch 27 different factories to manufacture everything that goes into these vaccines, including needles and syringes. So was all of this learning and experience somehow rolled up into a document that could have been left for future operatives in the federal government? Well, Tom, that's actually what I'm hoping the book serves that purpose. It's not a political book at all. It's a book about a great American achievement. And more important, there is a whole series of chapters in there about lessons learned. And even there's a chapter called If We Could Turn Back Time, meaning things we would have done differently if we could have started from scratch. So I think this will be, at least as far as I'm concerned, a definitive record of what happened, what we did right, what we did wrong. It wasn't perfect. It was very, very good, but it wasn't perfect. And hopefully it'll be a real anthology, if you will, for future public health crises. And by the way, what is the top thing you might have done differently, do you think? Well, I think it's communicating with the American people. We early on made a decision not to create too much enthusiasm for these vaccines because we weren't sure we were going to have one. Can you imagine if all 2020, we got the American people all lathered up about the vaccine is coming, the vaccine is coming. And then the FDA says, sorry, this isn't a safe and effective vaccine. So we kept a low key on that communication. I think we could have done that differently. Paul Mango is former deputy chief of staff at Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks, Tom. He's written a book about Operation Warp Speed. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that, I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger but really using data and so i would say i've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities but has evolved from being very reactive and saying well don't do this and don't do that to saying let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.